welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Yoga Podcast. I'm Peg Mulqueen. And I'm Megan Powell. Today, we bring you two teachers who hardly need an introduction. Mary Taylor and Richard Freeman have been traveling the world teaching yoga for the past 30 years. So we're betting that you already know them or at least know of them. But here's a few things that you might not know. Like Mary began her yoga studies in the early 1970s upon graduating Julia Child's cooking school in France and has authored three cookbooks. Deeply committed to bringing yoga and meditation into the healthcare system, Mary remains a part of the core faculty of the Being With Dying program and the Urban Zen Integrative Therapy trainings. Richard has been studying yoga and other contemplative practices since the late 1960s, including Iyengar, Shivananda, Ashtanga, and within various schools of Buddhism which might make you think that he's incredibly somber and serious. And maybe he is when it comes to his studies, but in his teaching, Richard is known for his subtle but wicked sense of humor. In 1988, Mary and Richard co-founded the Yoga Workshop in Boulder. They are co-authors of The Art of Vinyasa, and now their latest and timely gem that Megan and I have been reading, When Love Comes to Light, Bringing Wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita, into modern life. Welcome, Mary and Richard. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, I can't buy, I actually was really surprised when I heard that you went to the Julia Child's cooking school in France. I had no idea. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 It, uh... she, she was their pet student. <laughs> she actually stayed. Yeah, I, I, in their house. Yeah, yeah, at one point it was they they it was before they started their bigger school, which was exorbitantly expensive down in the south of France. So it was in the school I went to was in Paris, just outside of Paris. So I was lucky because it was, you know, I was like the one of two students and the last of the students in that school, and then they moved down to their beautiful villa and I stayed down there at a point a couple of years later wow. but it was a, it was quite an experience yeah I have just started getting into cooking Megan used to do all the cooking and now that she's not here <laughs> I am <laughs> and with the garden I mean it, it just it's lovely because all the harvest that's coming in and so it kind of makes it meaningful because I don't you know I've done all this work growing and so I'm I have a couple of good books but now Megan tells me that you've got recipes on the website Yep. Yep. Yeah, we uh, want to turn it into a cooking website. <laughs> Get real, you know. <laughs> it's those awesome. are pretty popular right now in the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we were reading the book, and I my first thought was when I first started reading was when did you start writing this? I mean, I just feel like it was so timely. I just felt like you were writing to me right now. Yeah. That's How when that we started. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> A few years ago, right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, we've, we've toyed with the idea for many, many years. Um, it's a book that Richard has always loved and I have always been intimidated by and then slowly started reading different translations and thinking about it. And um, 
But, you know, it's a daunting task to write a book about the Gita, number one, and then Richard did the translation in the back, which, you know, probably is a more daunting uh, task than writing about it. It's actually <laughs> translating it. And so it took us a while to to sort of begin, and then the publisher kept saying, yeah, we'd like you to do it. And then somehow in a moment of weakness, we said, yeah, let's do it. And then <laughs> suddenly we realized, oh, dear. And it was an interesting process because as a writer, what happens is sometimes, you know, things are very difficult to get started or difficult to, to do. And this was amazing, in fact, that it took us, um, because I think we'd been thinking about it so long, we started it and, and literally finished it within a year and a half, including the translation. So the um, the book is divided into a, a full uh, translation, which is the second half, and then a book about it, not written in the normal way that many uh, commentaries are, where it's a verse and then a translation, etc. So uh, the the first part of the book that that is what our essentially our commentary on it is only took about a year to write, and and Peg, as you're saying. What was amazing, even at that time, long before the pandemic, was that we would be involved in one section or another section or whatever in something in the world, either in politics or, you know, a friend or a situation we knew of would arise and it would be exactly what we were writing yeah. about. Yeah. Or in yoga politics. Or in yoga politics. <laughs> or any, yeah, politics and then... Uh, um, environment, yeah, environmental problems, um, our own, yeah, and then people uh, reading the Gita and then not under, you know, not understanding what it's about, you know, being misused, you know, to justify kind of fundamentalism or uh, fanaticism or superiority or something, and. Uh, I'd always found it a difficult, you know, a difficult text because it says things that are offensive um, to everyone at some point, if you read it carefully. And we decided that that was on purpose because it'll just lay out, you know, some of the more, uh, you know, true teachings, but in a way that, you know, reminds you of uh, in some kind of... Uh, caste system or, um, you know, misuse of yoga by, our, and I, we just finally thought, well, this is on purpose, you know, it's trying to make you think, Arjuna, uh, and so it's a very clever book in that way, and, uh, and so when you read it, uh, you're supposed to, like, get uncomfortable, just like Arjuna is uncomfortable, and, um, then you start, oh, wait a second, he's talking to me. <laughs> okay. I just noticed that, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, you're Arjuna, you're Arjuna. But I really felt like when reading the book, I have felt like Arjuna. And particularly right now, I do feel like that. And so it was good. I, it was, like mom said, or Peg said, so timely with where we are right now. And probably that 
of course, is any time. But really feel that sort of, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Like on the battlefield. And so I appreciated that. He, he was, Arjuna was so relatable. <laughs> yeah. And, and <laughs> Megan, it's, it's true in that this is such a poignant time in history and where it's not only you at the moment feeling like Arjuna, but people everywhere and all over. This is striking all of us um, in big ways. So yeah, it is on one level, it mm-hmm. is a book for all times. And on another level, you know, it does seem to be particularly ap- apl- applicable to uh, current situations on many, many, many levels. Um, so, you know, and then you look at these books like the Gita or or the Upanishad or other traditions, the, the texts that support other traditions, and you realize that, that, that the original authors really were trying to um, help people go through this kind of dilemma and, and confusing situation that is the nature of being on the planet. Being alive. (laughs) The part that really resonated with me was the need to know, and you talk about it in a way that's so relatable. I mean, you make Arjuna like modern times. Like I have tried to read the Bhagavad Gita before this and, and I have not done well in in most translations, they seem very scholarly and academic, and it's just hard, and the language isn't language that we might use right now, and it just didn't feel very relatable. But the idea of being caught between two sides and wanting to know, wanting to know that I've got to make a decision, I want to know that I'm going to make the right decision. And I love how you keep going, you know, Arjuna keeps circling back, like he makes it part of the way, and you think he's getting okay with that, and then he goes, okay, but now tell me, (laughs) <laughs> Tell me for real again. Tell me. And, and I feel like in this time, that's where we are, that we're in this like major uncertainty. I mean, I don't know when I'm going to see Megan again. I mean, I literally, we keep, for a little while there, we kept making plans. Oh, it'll be summer. Oh, it'll be Christmas. Oh, it'll be, you know, and, and now we have stopped um, actually making those plans. But I don't know that I'm getting more comfortable with that. <laughs> I, I, does, does that make sense? Because you still don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But we're seeing each other now. (laughs) We're seeing reproductions on a screen, but it's good. Well, and and I think one thing, (laughs) you know, that we have experienced, and I think it's important for people who practice yoga to uh, remember is that, you know, you can have these insights and think, yeah, I do yoga and I know, you know, I can be comfortable with not knowing. And then there are situations where we just lose it, where it's like, no, I have to know, please, I need to know, no matter who you are, you know, no matter how practice, yeah. no how, matter how insightful that those urges come back up. And then our task becomes what do we do with that and how do we, you know, how do we transmute that into something that is beneficial? Um, because that's the natural uh, response that, of course, as a mother, you would have and you will have. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just was thinking 
that it feels like we would be getting better with the uncertainty, but in a lot of ways, it feels like that culturally we're actually doing the opposite and trying, I mean, I think that's where like conspiracy theories come from and things like that. Like we're looking for an answer. We're making, you know, good guys and bad guys. And like, it's getting more and more polarized instead of more and more towards yeah. the middle. Does that make sense? Like, I don't, it, it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting more and more polarized. Um, and just, and people are not under, you know, it, it's almost like they have to face uh, what their minds do. And some people won't do it in this lifetime. Um, but then those who, you know, those too few people who do, you know, they, they can be helpful. <laughs> you know, they can help, uh, help these people, you know, understand a little bit better. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what is satisfying, you know, to somehow be helpful. Um, and probably we won't have everybody instantaneously enlightened. <laughs> Uh, at least for a couple of years. Um, so there's still going to be people who are totally confused. It's just like somehow can you communicate with them enough or get enough of a dialogue going so that they don't uh, just kill each other <laughs> or kill off the environment. Yeah. It's, um, and it's almost as though we have to, not we have to, but be for whatever reason circumstances have made it so that there is this sort of confluence of events that you know just piling one upon another upon another almost as if the whole thing needs to be you know dismantled and our rawness and our vulnerability as a people and as a as a uh, species and as a planet, all of that needs to be laid out there um, before us so that we can get real and say what is important here. And one of the messages from the Gita that is you know, foundational to yoga is what is important is connection. And whether or not you feel the connection that you have to everyone else and to the environment. And, you know, some people do, some people don't. And that's part of the problem these days is people not, people being so self-absorbed. But it's almost as if all those things have to be stripped away in order for us to see that that is how nature works, um, that, that everything is interpenetrating, interconnected. And until we you know, this is a time in the world that if we do not rise to that occasion, some very bad things will happen. And um, hopefully for the younger generations coming up behind us, we won't, you know, fumble at this point, but that we will, um, we will rise to that occasion. We will work across boundaries. You know, and I have always for Many years had great hope in your generation, Megan, and, and people younger than you too, and a little older. Our generation, you know, we're we're on the way out, but <laughs> um, but you know that that there the it's almost as though there is this um, sort of undercurrent um, of awareness in younger people that was not there when we were growing up, 
the undercurrent of awareness of interconnectedness and of the value that life has. And it's because that is a unique idea and an alien idea to some of the quote unquote establishment. Um, your generation, people of our generation who also believe in that and feel that way about things, it's almost like we're out in left field. No one's paying attention. And so once the momentum is there from enough of us just plodding along and continuing to do our work, suddenly there will be this tipping point, which I think this is where we are, is at that tipping point of uh, culture, humanity, environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because people have to talk to each other, basically, not yell at each other, but they have to actually sit down and communicate. And this is a unique time in history because, because of the internet, look where we are now. So people in every place, you know, we talk to people in all these different countries and they're in the same, same situation. And uh, with so much information available and so much misinformation available, but uh, that's a totally unique thing. Uh, Historically, it would take, uh, you know, generations for people to find out what another yoga school was doing that was two valleys away, you know, or two provinces away. <laughs> it would take so long. And, uh, but now it's like really, really fast. And it's, that's, it's so unique that we just don't know, you know, is... This ability to communicate, are we actually going to communicate and inquire of each other? uh, Or are we just going to yell at each other and fight? And that's back to the Gita, you know, these two sides. And and so when the Krishna first drew the chariot up between the two armies, he said to Arjuna, look at this one family. And he was saying, because both sides... We're actually one family, and that's what made Arjuna go, because uh, he saw all of a sudden that they were interconnected, and he saw what a mess it was, and how you know the whole approach wasn't working, and so he broke down, and uh, so we got one family. Uh. I love at one point when you talked about when you guys wrote about that Arjuna thought maybe he could hide in his yoga dharma, that maybe, you know, he could just kind of bypass all of that messiness and having to figure that out, <laughs> recusing himself from the whole situation. Yeah. yeah. That, isn't that a temptation with yoga? For- <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, historically, that's they've done that a lot, you know, like they'll, you know, withdraw, which at times might be the right thing to do, but at times it's not the right thing to do. And so Arjuna's situation, for him to withdraw, he realized that, that would cause many more, perhaps many more deaths. And then the psychopath, his cousin, Duridon, would take over, who was a true psycho. Um, just like certain people we, we know, certain <laughs> politicians, who was an equivalent politician, mm-hmm. 
And that could have been a total disaster. And so he didn't know. Um, it was so similar. Yeah. Duryodhan was, what's his name? <laughs> the, the orange buffoon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, and, you know, the, the temptation to just, you know, to pull out of the real world through one's practice is always there because it's comfortable. And because, Peg, going back to what you were saying, you kind of know where you stand. And so you can put blinders on to other things. But if the yoga, uh, if you stick with the yoga and work with it authentically and, and openly, in whatever way that means to you, whatever that means to you, um, it does its thing on you anyway, and it won't let you do that forever. The yoga gets in there, and it, if the yoga is deepening, which hopefully after you know a time of practicing and having you know great progress and then dips in our progress and then plateaus after a time, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper into an embodied um, experience. And in that embodied experience, ultimately you cannot ignore things because you feel viscerally the connection to the earth, to others. And, you know, like your garden, you were saying, you know, it, it makes you really tune into how we are all connected. And at that point, it's almost impossible because the yoga has made us more sensitive, it's almost impossible to maintain that sort of blinder approach to things, which is probably good news, even on, even though on some days you wish you could just <laughs> ignore it all. <laughs> <laughs> I think I realized that through this whole this whole pandemic and crisis, I mean, there's, it's just not just the pandemic, it's the political crisis, it's Black Lives Matter, it's so, so, so much that I'm only experiencing some small slice of it, and yet it's easy for me to get caught up in my small slice and not see outside of it. And when I listen and I'm hearing from people and realizing all the many ways uh, people are suffering, and hurting that I think in the beginning I was a little agitated and irritated. I won't lie to you. Like I was getting aggravated with everything, social media, everything. I think the more I listened, the more I realized how much people are hurting and mm -hmm. yeah, it just allowed me to open my heart a little bit more, be a little kinder and listen a little more and realize that I have no idea how people are experiencing this. Right. Yeah, and and uh, no one has any idea about anyone else, which is why we need, you know, I think that the way to start is by being the one to take the risk and, and take a step and say something like, you know, I don't understand racism. Uh, I have my own perspective on it and I, you know, have my upbringing and my experiences in the past, but I happen to have on some levels, you know, quote unquote, lucked out in this life not to be born into a state of uh, 
extreme poverty and um, or a, a country where there's continuous war. I mean, because if you imagine, oh my gosh, you know, my yoga classes have been canceled due to the pandemic. And then you look at people who that's just like, oh, okay, that's going on. But also I have no food for my children. I have no roof over my head. I have, you know, generations of prejudice within my, within my bones. Um, you know, those of us who have been fortunate enough to become more neurotic <laughs> about things um, mm -hmm. because we've had freedom and time and have been in some ways associated with the oppressors or with the, the ones who were not being um, sort of uh, the disadvantaged. Yeah. Exploited. Uh, exploited. Enslaved. enslaved. Uh, persecuted. You know, and all, you know, we can't then say, well, I'm going to pretend that these horrible things have happened to me, but we can own them. We can say, I, I need to listen and I need to do what I can do to share my, uh, mm. my vulnerability and communicate openly. Um, and, you know, it, we, it has been going on on different levels, this need to communicate um, within the Ashtanga community started a few years ago with the, you know, the whole Patabi Joyce situation as if that was something big compared to what this is now. Although it, it is big in some ways, you know, all of these things are um, important inroads into this same area of, uh, being connected and being truthful and being truthful most of all with oneself, um, really, truly owning up to uh, the ways we deceive ourselves, the way we avoid things, um, and also the way we don't do those things, the way we are generous and forgiving and kind, you know, opening up to it so that it gives us the whole picture rather than the one that we want to put on our social media page. <laughs> of course, Richard and I don't have a social media page that we manage, so I don't know. I'm talking, you know, with complete lack of knowledge about that. We read about that. <laughs> we read about it. <laughs> you talked about the yoga community, and I do feel like, um, wow, the shifts that have been made within the yoga communities in the past six months are unbelievable. Um, obviously, home practice has now become the norm. And um, I think it created a lot of fear in the beginning and a lot of lot feelings of grief and loss. But six months in now, I don't know. I, I, what, are, what are your thoughts? I'm, I'm hearing a lot of uh, freedom and liberation in there. And this idea that kind of a, a moving away from a very rigid idea of practice and um, a very dogmatic mm -hmm. um, concept and into now we're actually in the context of our own homes and our own lives. And you have no choice but to respond to that. You Are you feeling that, seeing that, whatever? Yeah, without uh, going to practice with a big group of people, even if it's a, a very open group, like a you know an open Mysore thing where everyone 
does what's appropriate for them. Uh, it's easier for your mind to wander if you're by yourself. Uh, you can see your own. It's much easier in a group, to, you know, to be, you know, mm -hmm. stern with it, and that you know that's good, and it's also it's good and bad. Um, but by yourself, there you are, <laughs> and you see your own neurotic behavior and your own little religious rituals that you create, and then you have to look at them as as you do that, and uh, and that's actually more of the way that. Uh, the old yoga tradition was people would learn and then they would go off and practice. Um, not, you know, with a, they would go off into their little hut, their shala or their sala and, in, um, and they would practice, you know, in their little hut as is traditional. And then occasionally they would see, you know, their teacher or their, uh, secondary teacher, um, and that would inspire them, and then they would go back. And but it's hard to do that because then you're faced with your own silliness. <laughs> and that's that's what we're... <laughs> which you got to laugh at. Yeah, you, know? you got to be compassionate towards yourself. Um, and that's what we're saying about being honest with yourself and being mm -hmm. and not being hard on yourself, like la being able to laugh at ourselves. Yeah, it's so, so important. Yeah, if you see that you have this incredibly powerful ego function, you know, that um, because we all do, you know, I mean, it's in our subconscious as Jung would say, you know, there's the demonic, uh, the Satan is there and all of his helpers. And that's, uh, and you, when the, when you see them inside yourself, you've got to be compassionate and see through them, uh, and see that they're not an actual separate entity. And, uh, that takes some courage, Arjuna. <laughs> One of the, um, in the last chapter, you spoke, now I don't want to give any spoilers away because, you know, oh, that would spoil for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but you spoke about uh, surrender, and I think that can be quite a difficult word to put words around and describe. It can mean so many things, but then when you explained it as, or has Krishna refined it as to take refuge in or to seek shelter? And especially in a crisis, I feel like that's so important. And when you go on to explain that, it's not just about, we can get so caught up in the letting go, let go, let go of your plans, let, you know, but it's also about letting in and I really, I liked that because to let something in, when you, like in a sanctuary, you feel so safe to allow that. And I feel like recently it's been quite difficult with the pandemic and maybe, you know, depending on your circumstances, maybe safety has never quite been something that's um, been there throughout your life but particularly feeling it with this pandemic right now of not feeling safe. And 
having refuge, like having something that can be a refuge for you to experience that and then to feel that interconnectedness because right now we just feel so isolated and alone, whether you're on an island or in your apartment. And that's so important right now. It can, it can be really hard to feel that interconnectedness. Yeah, thank you. That's, yeah. That is a, an important aspect of the teachings to us too. And it's very interesting in that the word refuge is used in the Gita. And, you know, the, the Buddhist tradition, uh, that's something that is spoken of frequently is to take refuge in the Buddha. And, and then when you look at, as you were saying, the idea of what refuge means as opposed to surrender, and surrender being something where you give it up and, and it, it has the tendency, if it is in the wrong um, circumstance, to create a hierarchy so that a person of a certain yeah. stature could take power over you or you could relinquish your power and your autonomy, etc. Yeah. And yeah. refuge really is a um, totally different thing where it is a matter of trust, where we trust ourselves enough to show up authentically, yeah. fully, and trust the other, and the other is trustworthy. So that's that's an important distinction. And for all of us right now, finding those relationships, the spaces we can be in that within which we can take refuge or within teachings, one can take refuge. refuge. Yeah. And when you take refuge, you bring with you your whole thing, you know, your your entire mind, your unconscious mind. Uh, you bring your pets and uh, your circumstances. And you just take refuge, okay, with your friend. Um, <laughs> and then you can work it out with them. Um, and that's the Buddhist Chattanam. You know, that's, that's, so don't surrender. Krishna doesn't want you to surrender, because then he'd be a dictator. And you would be a, and your unconscious mind would be, you know, really upset and eventually would rebel. Um, so that would be miserable. But to take refuge is to come and hang out, you know, bring your whole situation, and we'll take a look at it. So you're asking, you know, this pure intelligence, which is the center of your own heart, the true you. Let's look at this whole situation together and just look at it. Because the whole situation is, the Gita is saying, it's not actually you, Arjuna. It's all this sacred daivi prakriti. It's divine energy that's interwoven even your neuroses and your body and everything every thought you have is sacred and let's just look at it rather than and and we have it. you know we yeah. all have the um know-how um to take refuge with one another and i was just flashing on the situation in the northwest in the united states where houses have been burned people have lost everything, including their dental floss and their underwear and everything, except for what they managed to drive away with. And um, they are somewhere right now taking refuge. And in a moment of crisis, the uh, human tendency sometimes to say, oh, this is an opportunistic moment for me to take advantage of someone else. 
uh, for the person they're living, you know, they're taking refuge with in a dire situation like the fires or like a major crisis, we tend not to have that divisiveness unless it's being stirred up from the outside by someone else. There is this, you know, basic human nature, which is good, that surfaces and that we say, oh, let's help each other. And yeah, here, use my dental floss <laughs> and we'll get you some more. <clears throat> my unused dental floss. My unused dental floss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, or whatever you <laughs> Yeah, so it's a big one. It's, it, it's true. All of these things that are spoken of in the Gita are just bubbling up in they're this time. They're spot on. Yeah, there's, yeah, they are. Can you talk a little bit about sacrifice? Yeah, yeah the word sacrifice makes you go, oh, no. Because it means you're you're actually putting down or giving away something that is you don't want to you know that's valuable. Otherwise, it's not really a sacrifice. Uh, um, and so, uh, it's yoga is considered to be the art of sacrifice. You know, the skill of sacrifice, and. And but that means also just placing it down on what would be considered the, you know, giving it to all other beings, uh, placing it on the what would they say the altar if you like religious terms of pure awareness, and then you let it go. You go take it, okay, and that art is uh, the greatest relief. Okay, is to let things go. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not good. You know, it's not you're giving away something of value, like your life, you, you know, self-sacrifice. Um, but in letting it go, you have the realization that, that it's not really you. You know, that it's there's nothing in it that's permanent that you're actually letting go of. You're just letting it reveal its nature as fizz. Does that word mean anything? Fizz means uh, like it's just a composition of interconnected bubbles that vibrate as shakti, as energy, and you actually have that realization. So yoga is the art of sacrifice. Um, and and it's, it's said that the ultimate sacrifice really is giving knowledge, the setting down. Oh, the sacrifice of knowledge. Yeah, the sacrifice. Oh, yeah. yeah which is a good one. <laughs> yeah, and that's a funny term because you're giving up. One is you are you have knowledge or wisdom and you're making a sacrifice. That's but you're also putting down on the your all of your formulations and ideas and what we call dharmas, which are all of your systems of knowledge, your language systems, your sacred words. You know, like, uh, what's the sacred word that, uh, you know, like, hey, Zeus, <laughs> hey, Zeus, you know, all of those terms, you know, that, you know, that my, my sacred word is better than your sacred word, and my mantra is better than your mantra, my scripture is better than your scripture, and you're taking all of those words and formulas, everything that is, and you're 
making a sacrifice of those. You're letting them go. <sighs> but then the art of letting them go, any of these sacrifices, is that it's not just you, you know, chuck them out the window and just, you know, go have a beer. It's that you <laughs> put them down with great awareness and, and then you're attentive. In other words, it becomes making a sacrifice becomes again a gesture of of uh, generosity, of humility, of vulnerability, and connecting with the beloved who's in the heart. That you know that experience of the middle path um, through through sacrifice, and. Uh, it's a it's a scary metaphor for people. Sacrifice. When when I read your words and that everything we do in life involves sacrifice, and I'm not always aware. You're not always aware of the sacrifices you're making, and we also live in a culture where it's kind of like you can have it all. It's, there's an idea that that's kind of fed to you, which isn't true, but that you can have it all. But when you realize that you're making sacrifices, it makes the choices that you make all the more important and sacred and beautiful. And I, I think just realizing what you were giving up for the sake only adds to the preciousness of what you chose. But it, it really brought a new level of awareness for me, it just in, even in my day to day, but also the many sacrifices I think that people are making right now and the choices that we're making. Yeah, and, and uh, a big part of sacrifice is that it's not for your benefit. <laughs> hmm. It's this exercise in uh, demonstrating that you care about others. Hmm. Um, and that's why sacrifice has to be made authentically and, and with something as that a has, a value, has hmm. value to you. Um, you are, Richard often will you know, give the example in classes of, you know, some of the rituals that are done, you know, traditionally in different uh, cultures, like in the Vedic culture, and you give a cow or whatever. And it's not that you give the old cow that's about to collapse walking down the street, you give your best cow. And that's, you know, if you're making the actual sacrifice. And then the idea of sacrifice interfaces with the idea of ritual because again everything we do is some kind of ritual in a way and then bringing conscious awareness to our daily rituals so that that they create moments of pause where we then uh, start to consider what our motivations are in taking action what is your intention what is your motivation and those two things intention and motivation are very different from one another, and they need to be in alignment with one another if mm -hmm. um, you're making a, a sacrifice that is meaningful. Yeah. Because many religions, you know, they're all sacrificial in some way, but they're not putting the whole thing down. They're just putting down, <laughs> you know. So it doesn't really connect you to others. Um, it's kind of sad. Yeah. But it's still almost religious in nature, but it's a misguided ego. It's just, you know, the ego has taken over. And, and this can happen in yoga, too. There's, mm -hmm. 
And I'm doing the whole I, thing just so that I can become famous, one, and then I'll become wealthy. And then I want to dominate the planet Earth completely. And then once I get the Earth, I'm taking over the solar system, and then I'm taking over the Milky Way. And that's just my beginning. It was, there's no end. And that's why I do yoga. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are sometimes when sacrifices are worn like a badge of honor, like look yeah, how tough exactly. I am. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't know, look how early we get up and I sacrifice my sleep and I, you know, Oh, this is one of those times when you're going to say something and you're not sure that you should say it because we're recording, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm going to say it. I, do you remember when I was talking to Sherrod in Mysore and one of the things that he was talking about is the sacrifices that parents should make in coming over? Because I was saying that, that I did not come until my kids had graduated high school. I felt strongly that I needed to be at home. And he said, well, that's a sacrifice that you make. And, and it is one that a lot of people will. And it wasn't one that I chose. And I guess when you make a sacrifice, the choice that you make is almost sacred. And so I chose the home as, as sacred, but in that way, the sacrifice almost felt like you have to work hard. Like you have to give up what means the most to you. It'd be like Abraham giving up the son at the, at, you know, on the stone and like, you know what I mean? Like, and, and those things never made sense to me, but when I read it in the, in your book, it made sense. It wasn't just a ritual. It wasn't for nothing. It was to make sacred where you gave your attention and your focus and your, your love. Yeah. yeah. And for that particular situation, um, for, as you say, for some people, it was the appropriate um, sacrifice, um, but not necessarily for everyone. I don't, th it, it certainly wasn't for us. Uh, Richard went to India a number of times without me so I could be home um, with our son. And uh, for me, that was that was the gut feeling of what needed to happen. And if you say, oh, no, no, this is the sacrifice um, that has to be made, the problem with that way of thinking is that then you've codified what, the sac what a particular sacrifice is. It's no longer, um, in a way, the sacrifice was not going. You know, I remember not going to workshops even with, you know, wonderful teachers who were in town. And I, there would be times where I think, oh, gosh, I'm really losing out. And then I thought, no, this is my choice here to be here. And, and that is the sacrifice to show up to the things that you are, um, you know, for the things that you believe in. And that's when you know that it's the right sacrifice for your circumstances, just like your dharma. You don't, you know, we, in the very beginning of the Gita, we talk about what dharma means and what Arjuna's dharma is. And at the end of the book, the advice is to give up all dharmas. But what do those two things mean? Because you have to follow your dharma, but you have to also know when to put it yeah, down. What's your real dharma? Yeah. Not that dharma, but your real dharma. And then, and even in the Gita, the, you have Dharma, your duty, but then you have your Swadharma, yeah. which is your real duty. And then again, there's a Swa Swa Dharma. <laughs> you know, if you think you got it, then oh, how about your Swa Swa Dharma? And, oh, no. And 
you got to look into and then you know if if you do it with that uh even if you make a maybe not the best choice you still get the connection with other beings and that was the whole point in the first place <laughs> i appreciated within the book the way that at the end where you had exercises and made it a very practical and real way to make connections with the teachings. The idea with the embodiment exercises as the appendix is that really, truly the way to understand these teachings is through the vehicle we are driving around the planet in our own body and to become embodied and to by being embodied we start to feel the connection to earth the energy patterns within our own uh, embodied experience and then then we're so much more able to tune in to what is really truly going on and and much more able to tune into teachings like you know the texts or like the practices if we're really truly tapping into the body so i'm glad that helped you this morning <laughs> <laughs> it did even down to your um Brahmari and like the conch shell megan said to me when we first read that first chapter megan called me and she goes okay they have totally blown in a conch shell like nobody can explain it like that unless they've had the experience <laughs> is that but really, you were just doing your own exercise, so. <laughs> True. <laughs> I love those two connections. Um, I just want to circle back before I let you guys go and say thank you for your course. That, oh. that wow. And okay, I had been holding off. So in case anyone missed it, you know, I, the summers here in Montana are, um, they're big, you know, like it's hard uh, to leave in Montana. We only have like two and a half months of summer. And <laughs> so and you always do your summer intensives and I've always wanted, and there's always a big waiting list. So when you came out, that was one of the benefits of, of COVID. When you offered those four weeks online, I think, I, I mean, I jumped at it. I think I wrote you back right away and I was like, I'm in, I'm like, it was so wonderful. It was also though, which you may not have known is I'd been very hesitant to do much online. It, it was feeling like a lot um, very quickly, the way everything went online. I just felt very overwhelmed. And by the time you guys had offered this, I'd felt some space in that and, and like I'd had some, you know, I, I, could, I could do that and I couldn't think of anybody else that I kind of want to do it with. So it was perfect. But um, it was really lovely. I guess it just kind of blew my expectations. It felt so personal and intimate and I learned so much. and. It, it was amazing. Oh, wonderful. That's yeah. great. We were so happy to see you there. And, uh, and it was actually our first um, online. We'd done a few classes for things that had been canceled that were uh, disastrous. From sometimes. Thailand, we did. From Thailand. It was. But uh, <laughs> it, 
you know, we've had the same feeling that, you know, to just immediately for us to immediately jump in and just say, okay, we're putting everything online. We just, you know, couldn't quite do that. It seemed like we needed to pause. And so for us to do that course and then have people like you involved in that course, it was, it was very, uh, like you say, we felt much more connected than we thought we might. So we were happy to have done it. We'll probably do some, we've got a few more things lined up. We're just trying to figure out some technical oh, technical things yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like lighting and uh, microphones, cameras, uh, and then the internet. Oh my God. <laughs> it's still with all of those glitches. I mean, all those things that can go wrong. It just felt like such a human experience. That was what I, I think I was afraid wasn't going to be there, but it was, it was there and it felt good practicing in my own home. And it did feel like you were there. I mean, I just, I felt all of those connections and I was grateful. And I, I loved being able to bring that into my own home practice. And by the way, I had, so, I, I wrote down all these like aha moments. That's what I called them on my notebook. I was like aha moments, you know, everything from the way you describe twisting and the back bending and the way I it just, everything kind of made sense to me. And you gave so many different options and ideas, looking at different bodies. And even the two of you are so different in the way, in the way your bodies move. And it was just lovely to have some context. And you would always say, feel it yourself and you do it. And, and it was just really nice to have that opportunity to experience various ways. I mean, you you had us lift our heels in 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 a back bend, right? And I and I hadn't ever done that. You know, it's kind of like you don't lift your heels and like, but there. <laughs> but I understood. But you were like, try. You do what you always do. You you're big on the paradox. You love offering this and that, and they could be completely opposite, and you know, offer it up for the experience of the person and. I loved that. And it felt neat to be able to play with those ideas and concepts. And yeah, so that was all. I just, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. It was very inspiring and motivating and beautiful. And I'm appreciative. Thank you. Yeah, our pleasure. <laughs> Your pleasure you gonna, is our pleasure. You'll do another? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're working on ideas for different things and trying to figure out the logistics. We have a couple of, um, you know, we had a thing, we had two courses that were scheduled for next week and the following week. Um, and then we have a thing with Menla, with Bob Thurman that was scheduled, um, for the June and then got rescheduled. And now that one's going to be online. So, you know, we're just sort of slowly deciding, what is the saturation point for us and for other people and what can be valuable, you know, and it, it harkens back to that idea of do, do some work with your online teacher or with your in-person teacher and then go do it on your own for a while rather than, okay, do this on Monday and this on Thursday and this on Sunday and, and then do, do more, but no, just do a little bit and then really work it. Uh, is a good rule of thumb. So we're one of the things we're thinking of is what are some other things besides asana that would be of value and support 
during this time. Um, and one of them, you know, like chanting and meditation and pranayama. In addition, um, and we've even thought about doing kitchen yoga, which is something we have talked about for years, which is you're in the kitchen waiting as the water boils for uh, the vegetables to be put into steam and you do a pose. But another version could be a cooking class. So who knows what we'll do. <laughs> well, I have a feeling anything that you decide to do um, will be so valuable. And wow. I just, I mean, honestly, I just want to say that this book, your book, was you make it so relatable. And I don't feel like I need to be a scholar to enjoy it. And as Megan was saying to me earlier, you don't even have to be practicing a long time to enjoy it. You don't even have to practice at all, um, actually, to... Because it's just human nature. Like if, if you yeah. feel like Arjuna, no matter who... You, I mean, it helps if you're interested in yoga and... You know, it certainly makes it more interesting, I guess. But you could be, I mean, anyone could read it and be like, yeah, yeah, that I have felt that. I know that. I don't think I've read a book like this. I don't think that I have. And I think it is truly unique. Wonderful. That's good. Well, we're very happy to have. Thank uh, you for your feedback. Because yeah. we have no idea having written it. It's like, I wonder if this is crazy or not. Yeah, you know? we kept after we got it, turned it in, we we're like, oh dear, did we remember to mention Arjuna? And then it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so <laughs> no, it, it really um, resonated and it was just so grounded in everyday life. And that's what makes um, learning easier is when you can feel the experience when it's not just something that's kind of out there and studied, but something that we can relate to and is grounded in real life. And that's, that's the way I felt as, as I've been reading is that, like Megan said, mom, I think everybody feels that way at any time when they're reading it. And that's, uh, that's a big deal to say that. Thank you, Peg. Thank oh, you. I, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please be safe, both of you, and uh, it's wonderful to see you both again. It is so good to see you both as well. Wonderful to see you. Bye-bye. <laughs> your arms down Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ashanga Dispatch Podcast. Peg and I have some exciting projects coming up. To stay connected with what we're doing, please subscribe to our email at ashangadispatch.com. The Ashanga Dispatch podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by Peg Queen and me, Megan Powell. The music you've been enjoying is from Mark Pilly's latest album, Everything's Coming Home. To download this and more, visit arcsong.net. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast for a very special guest, my teacher, Dina Kingsburg. Thanks for listening. Down.